Premier Obstacle Race Series is coming to a location near you. Ruckus events include best-in-class obstacles, mounds of mud, and fun for the whole family. Teens and adults can participate in a 5K obstacle race, and kids ages 2 to 13 can enjoy a kid's mini ruckus. Visit runruckus.com for dates and locations, including D.C., Los Angeles, Houston, and South Florida. Come experience this family-friendly event and compete in the best obstacle race challenge in the nation. Use the code ORM15 to get $15 off any ruckus event. Register today at www.runruckus.com. Welcome to Matt B. Davis Runs. This podcast, oh, it's the Obstacle Racing Media Podcast, hosted by Matt B. Davis Runs. Uh, it may take a while for me to change that. Uh, welcome to the show, folks. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. A great show on hand for you today. Jason Pittman interview will be up here shortly. Uh, first, I want to let you know what's going on with the world of us. First of all, uh, catching up with everything Obstacle Racing Media. We are consolidated. We are one thing now. So, first things first, the website, obstacleracingmedia.com. Quick note there, on the right side of that website, uh, on your computer, you'll see a bunch of races. Those are our sponsors. Uh, Click those links. Use those discount codes. We love our sponsors. If you're using your iPhone or other portable device that's smallish, those ads will be at the bottom. Uh, You also will hear from those sponsors uh, sponsoring these various episodes as we go along. Uh, the show is back on iTunes. There were some issues. Now we're there. Obstacle Racing Media Podcast. Do a search and you can find it. If you're new to us and you want to catch up on the older episodes, that's the Matt B. Davis Runs Podcast, which you can also search through iTunes. If you have any questions, drop me a line or ask a friend. Uh, you do want to get on the email list as well, which you can do by clicking on the subscribe here on the website. And of course, Facebook. Obstacle Media, and Twitter, Obstacle Media. All right, now, folks, we're going to read a letter. Uh, I thought we had great success with those that have checked in uh, with emails and messages in the past. So here is today's letter. Hey, Matt, I thought I would drop you a line with some podcast feedback. I look forward to your podcasts and listen to them as soon as they're up on iTunes. Thank you for giving me some entertainment at work. A few comments. There's a lot of coverage on new slash small races. While some of the truly innovative races deserve that kind of coverage, sometimes it is too much. It's a lot of how they make the sausage when I'm more interested in eating the sausage. It also occasionally feels like product placement. I don't think you want the podcast to be how to start your own OCR. You should focus more on the participants. Number two, I really like the interviews with the elite athletes. I enjoy the hot air balloon talk, for example. I would like to hear more about their training and what gear they rely on in races. What are their keys to their success? Number three, I would like to hear, read some gear reviews. For example, I recently went through three brands of socks before I found one I really liked. You should have a gear correspondent to test out some gear. Hydration packs, energy gels, etc. Lots of things to cover. Hope the feedback helps. Keep up the good work. Ryan from Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, Ryan, thank you very much. I think that is all great feedback. I will definitely take that into account. Uh, I definitely think we can have some gear reviews. Uh, we definitely want to do some for the website. I think it would be a cool feature for the podcast as well. So if you're offering up yourself, awesome. Drop me a note and let me know if you want to be considered for that position. If not, let's open it up. Uh, who wants to uh, Who wants to review some gear? Let us know. Drop me a line, Matt at ObstacleRacingMedia.com. Also on the Facebook, you can drop me a message. Uh, and if you want to uh, do what Ryan did and let us know what you like and don't like about the show, uh, I'm enjoying this. This is great. It's very helpful. And uh, again, appreciate that you guys are listening and uh, making this part of your day or your week or whatever. All right, dudes. Today on the show, Jason Pittman, he's a runner, 
we met through mutual friends uh, here this last year, and I wanted to talk to him about uh, music business and running, uh, but it turns out that we only talked about the music business. Uh, for this one, for part one anyway, uh, there'd probably be a part two, and I think you'll see why when we get to it. Um, but he produced uh, a really huge song called Party Like a Rockstar about six years ago, and uh, I thought that was pretty darn cool. And so uh, I don't want to say anything else about the interview, just uh, kind of get ready to go on a long run, and uh, or along ignoring your job, <laughs> or along whatever you do, and uh, here we go with Jason Pippen. Earlier we are talking about where you grew up, and you said you grew up on the Marshall Islands. Where is that again? The Marshall Islands is... About 10,000 miles off the coast of California, probably closer to Australia than the States. It's part of the um, islands we annexed back in the 40s, 50s to do nuclear testing. Bikini Atoll, all that good stuff. We lived on a small island. It was uh, approximately three square miles called Kwajalein. How many people live there besides you? I think a couple thousand 3,000, most of them were military. Right. So they lived in the barracks, and then the uh, contractors and their families lived in homes or trailers or whatnot. The longer you were there, the more seniority you had. If you had kids, you were more up to get a home than... Did they, would they fly you out there, or you have to take a boat? Oh, no, it was a flight. It's 10,000 miles. So, I mean, Hawaii was barely halfway... Okay, and you lived there until you were how long? Seven. Okay, and then what about, where'd you live next? Uh, from seven to eight, I lived with my grandparents, and for some odd reason, my parents felt like I needed to repeat third grade, even though third grade on Kwajalein was probably the equivalent of tenth grade in Alabama. <laughs> so... <laughs> I lived with my grandparents for a year while my family was migrating back to the States. Um, then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. So you've been here almost your whole life then? No, we moved from Atlanta. My dad was working for Raytheon at the time. And then uh, he and my mother got a divorce when I was nine, two years after we moved back here, or a year after we moved back here. And then... Um, my dad moved to Huntsville, Alabama, which, of course, is the mecca of all government contracting. Right, it's where they build the... It's where they build design pretty much everything. Right. So do you remember what like, what you first listened to music-wise as a kid? Like, do you know what, you, what was in your parents' record collection? Um, yeah. I remember being eight years old, and I had an eight-track in my room, and I think... Me and my brother would listen to the Grease soundtrack. Right. Um, that was kind of probably my first memory of actually listening to music on my own. Then, of course, you know, being only having an eight track, you know, you're kind of limited. So, of course, I ended up listening to a lot of Kiss because it was easy to find Kiss on eight track. For some you didn't. You guys didn't have vinyl. You didn't have a record player. Yeah, my dad did, but we were that was off limits until I was probably twelve when I waited in line to buy nineteen eighty four <laughs> Van Halen, and then that's probably when my love for music really grew. And then I played upright bass in third grade, fourth grade, and then after that, kind of migrated to electric bass. So, let's back up a little bit, though. So. Van Halen 1984 was going to come out, and mm -hmm. so you waited in line because people aren't going to, you know, people buy everything now. The second it exists, yeah, there yeah. it is. They, like I was, like I remember the other day, I was talking to somebody and we couldn't think of the name of a song or the words of a song, and you, know, you just Google it in, and there it is. And like trying to explain to somebody in their twenties, like once upon a time you would sit at the radio and wait for the song to come on because mm -hmm. if it was popular, it'd be like, all right, in the next hour they're probably going to play this song that we really like. Yeah. So you had to wait in line yeah. for 1984 to come out. Waited in line. Did you stay up all night? Was it a camp no, out? No, no. But I got there three or four hours early and waited in line for three hours to buy it on vinyl. Right. Yeah. And that was probably the first first, uh, first thing I bought. And then after that was Prince. And then 
Lord knows what else after that. Um, so where did, I guess, where did hip hop come in then? Um, hip hop really came in during high school. My, uh, I lived way out in the country after we lived in, we lived in downtown Huntsville proper. And then my dad decided that he wanted more space and wanted to live out in the country. So we moved from Huntsville to Hazel Green, which is on the Alabama, Tennessee state line. And, uh, we were city kids our whole life. So when we moved out there, they still used the term city slicker. They would actually call us that. Of course, that was, uh, you know, 28 years ago. But, um, you know, so we moved out there and um, I think I was going into sixth grade. Uh, barely survived middle school because we were outcast. You know, we didn't grow up out there. Nobody knew us. So we were somewhat outcast until our parents decided to start letting us build half pipes and, you know, ramps and stuff like that because that we just didn't have anything in common with the kids out there, you know. Until you started skating with them? Uh, yeah, we were biking BMX style. Right. You know. Um, then of course they would come over and say, Oh, I don't need a helmet and bust face. And we would just (laughs) laugh, you know? Um, but yeah. And then when I, when, when I got in ninth grade, I became friends with the school janitor. Um, he was the DJ for all the high school dances. He had this big Jerry curl. Gosh, I wish I could remember his name, but he, uh, made me my first mixtape. Really? Yeah, it was like mixtapes, like way before mixtapes were quote unquote mixtapes. This was like no, you just sit there with like either the record player or the two yeah. tape recorders and hit record. Well, that's what he did. He sat there with records and then made me a tape. Started off with like you know the real Roxanne, the roof is on fire, right? You know, um, all I mean the early early stuff, way before Run DMC was even really popular, right? You know, and um, that's kind of where I got my introduction to hip hop. And did you think like, oh my God, this is like greater than any hardcore rock or Van Halen I'd heard? Or you just think, okay, this is this great new thing? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, this was the early days of hip hop, you know, between 81 to 86, you know, that was like the beginning. Right. You know, so I'm like first generation hip hop, you know. And uh, I pretty much listened to everything from EPMD to Run DMC to, um, you know, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank on all the names, but all the early shit. I I had a mixtape always. He would make me new mixtapes. Right. I was like one of the few people that would like really chat it up with the guy. Well, right, he's a school janitor. Well, that and I was an outcast, so it was easily it was easy for me to communicate with someone who everybody ignored essentially. Right. So you said you were already playing bass. So did you like go, okay? I need to get turntables, or did you want to make music? Uh, at that point, no, not really. I didn't really come into my own making music probably until ninety one. And so you were how old in 91? 91. I don't know. I'm 40 now. So it's 2013. I was 19. Okay. So when you were 19, you you decided, I want to make... I want to make records. I want to make a band. Like, what yeah. was your... Uh, it was started off being a band. We called ourselves World Soul because everybody in the band was from different parts of the world or whatever. One kid was straight from India. Another kid was straight from Mexico. And then two white boys, you know. Because, like, cause like, you know, the kids that started bands when I was in high school, we... We listened to rap, but we weren't, like, engulfed in it like you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. like, if they wanted a band, it's like, this guy plays the drums, this guy plays the guitar, let's start playing. But I don't know how, like, hip-hop bands sort of, like, get in the garage and jam. Uh, we weren't hip-hop. We were, like, rock, rock and roll. I didn't I didn't officially... I mean, my, my intro to Atlanta hip-hop was probably 1992, going into 93, early Outkast, first Goody Mob. Right. You know, I remember that. Who's that looking in my window, pal? <laughs> Nobody now. I mean, that was like my my intro to Atlanta. 
right? Hip hop. Well, so you think that? Um, well, were you here then, or were you still in Alabama? No, I, I moved to Atlanta as soon as high school was over because okay. I went in front of a judge after I stole some beer and some jar of change, and he told me I either needed to leave the state or go in the military. So leaving the state was the obvious Well, one. I told him I was going in the military, and then that night when my parents got home, I snuck off, jumped on a bus, and came to Atlanta with a bass guitar and a backpack. Nice. Is there still a warrant for you, or do you think they've let that go? Uh, I mean, statues ran out. They're not looking for. So me. then, if that's when you got here, that was sort of like the birth of hip hop here, right? Yeah, so it was like kind perfect of the timing. Birth. Yeah, it was. It was the birth. I didn't. I moved to Athens in '93, uh, late '92, um, kind of chasing my ex-wife, so to say. She had gotten accepted to UGA, right? And so I kind of chased her there, and then I got into the Athens music scene very heavily. Um, started doing my own concerts, putting on my own festivals, managing burgeoning artists, and um, kind of eclipsed like in '96 by booking the Coca-Cola Olympic stage for the Olympics in Athens for the soccer. Right. Um, and then kind of after that, I kind of had enough of the Athens scene. You know, I saw Dave Matthews play at a 800-seat hall. Right. I mean, I was I made friends with many different people. The guy, some of the guys from Panic, you know, we'd go to late night 40-watt 40 disco, and Michael Stipe would be trying to dance with me and stuff. I was like, eh, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, I got to see a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I got to see, you know, Kurt Cobain walking around. Um you know, got to meet at that period. You know, some of the coolest musicians. On who the were planet. the Who were the local bands then? I'm trying to think because my that's when my friends like we're the same same age. Yeah. So all my friends went to UGA, and they were in bands, but they were in they, they weren't in. You know, they didn't have any level of like, uh, fame per se. But I was trying to remember who was even up and coming then. Who was up and coming then? I mean, you know, like. I, I fondly remember Aquarium Rescue Unit. Okay, I remember that. Um, this band called Tibbet Street, um, of course, Panic, even though I never really went to any of those shows. I, I met Dave Schools at, I was working at the taco stand in downtown Athens, and he would always come in and one day invited me to a party, and I get there and there's all these hot girls, and I'm like, why does this big dude have all these hot girls? <laughs> and we're talking about bass guitar, and little did I even know that this guy was like some big time rock star and I think he appreciated that because I know right. I, did, I didn't really give a shit right so 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 you so you it, so for you at first it wasn't about the playing or producing it was about events and making the shows happen yeah events and then you know I went on dead tour fish tour all that stuff I was more in the hippie side of things really yeah See, that's kind of surprises me yeah I was big time in that movement for a while and um like working or just partying uh, doing shows and you know promoting and going to a lot of shows and you know saw many awesome shows back then right you know many bands that are now you know huge right so i thought you were gonna say dead yeah, I did, I did go see the dead a lot. No, but I think you meant people who are now dead. Like Oh, people who like, are now like, dead. Yeah. Like Kurt's dead and Jerry's yeah. dead. Yeah, and... yeah. Yeah. It was awkward seeing Kurt because like a couple of weeks later is when he right. offed himself, which was pretty hairy, heavy for me. Um, and then uh, I never really finished school, got tired of partying. Moved back to Atlanta, moved to Little Five Points in 97, and that's when kind of my hip-hop stuff took over. Uh, one of my best friends, um, Mike Hartnett, who's played guitar and bass on, I don't know, hundreds of big-time records coming out of Atlanta from Outkast to Goody Mob to TLC to you name it, um... I hung out with him a lot, and because he was super duper talented, white boy, basically if you mix Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Wonder, and made him a white boy that played guitar and bass, that was Mike. Mike was just so freaking talented that all these guys wanted to use him on record, so I would just, 
end up essentially just hanging rolling with Mike everywhere and that's where I met started meeting like organized noise who did the you know all the early outcasts TLC Goody Mob and I kind of tutelaged under Ray Murray who is known as Yoda amongst that group because he kind of was the main producer for for all those guys and um tutelaged under him for a while and kept promoting concerts had my own night at this place called yin yang cafe which is you know if you're around in atlanta in the 90s you knew that was like the mecca of music for the funk soul you know hip-hop kind of community that's where we all went was, what uh, where was that like a part of town uh third and spring okay yeah it's right over there and um I mean, I remember sitting on the stoop with me and NDRE just sitting there going, oh, one day we're going to make it. And, you know, sitting there listening to the Chronicle playing, which was just a combination of all the greatest session live musicians in town. I mean, you'd be sitting there and one night Eric Badu would come through or George Benson or George Duke. I mean, it was always like on Thursday night was like the night. It was amazing. I mean, it was one of those things where you kind of had to be there. To right. see it, and I had made friends with the owners of the club through this other gentleman, and um, finally convinced them to give me my own night. And I did Tuesday night, which was like live hip hop band, and then we would do like MC battle, and then the band would come back on right afterwards. And we kind of spawned that. That was like ninety seven, ninety eight. Did that probably until ninety nine, two thousand. And so, at that point, did you still sort of have like? making music as like a side project yeah, no i i was more um more about the business side i kind of given up somewhat on my creative side um during that period and then kind of after i, I kind of took a break from the urban side and started managing this band called sector nine and um I can't really take responsibility for their fame today, but I helped them kind of move, migrate from house parties to performing at theaters. And now, of course, when they come to Atlanta, they sell two nights at the Fox. Well, I'm I'm rather unhip, so I still have not heard of them. What song do they have? They they don't they don't survive on radio play. They're kind of like an electronic. Like a jam band kind of thing? Um, I wouldn't even call them a jam band. They kind of started off in that vein, but they were still more electronic. They just had this genius keyboard player and a really, really great drummer and a good guitarist and a good bass player. And they were kind of more like the transition from the jam band era into the EDM stuff. Like they're kind of the top of the pile when it comes to live EDM stuff. Right. No. Just just out of curiosity, because I saw that like panic is like coming back to town. Like that was such a, a movement. Are mm. there are those are any of those guys like still around? Like do people follow Panic or Dave Matthews? People do that anymore? I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't paid attention, you know, since two thousand one, you know. I don't really pay attention to what's going on per se. Um so I managed Sector Nine for two plus years probably and book promoted drove the drove the van all that stuff and uh kind of just was an integral part of their birth of them and from there i started seeing that well if i can be part of something like that's growing at this rapid rate i could probably kind of do something on my own and uh that's Probably like 2099, 2000, I um, built my own studio out off of Fulton Industrial out in the <laughs> the worst part of Bankhead. And uh, like my neighbor was Pastor Troy, whom at that time, like his claim to fame was no play in GA, which is basically him attacking Master P. Right. And uh, it was kind of crazy. I mean, we were, our studios were right next door to each other, and we never really hung out until he realized I was smoking better weed than he was. <laughs> and uh, so they would come. Then he wanted to be friends? Uh, not necessarily friends, but wanted to acquaint himself with right. us. Well, you got you the know. good weed. Then come yeah, on. the good weed. Everybody likes you. I mean, you know, to be honest, uh, I can't lie. Um, that was always kind of my thing. You know, after hanging out with 
jam bands for so long, you get the plug on the uh, the glow in the dark weed, and all the rapper guys want to hang out with you. Right? They don't have their own. You think they might have their own connection, but no, they just they find a guy like you. That's oh, they do now, but it all started from some hippies in Asheville or Cali. You know? <laughs> it's not like the urban crowd just started growing herb. You know, right? It's just it all came from the hippies, right? So. Um, but obviously you had some talent cause that can get the good way you can get in the door, but you're not going to stay there if you're not a good guy to be around. And a yeah, person, right? I, uh, put out my first rap album in 1999, um, under a small distribution company out of Tennessee and, uh, to really no avail. We were kind of more of a West coast type feel. And then the guys that I was working with ended up going out to L.A. and working with Dr. Dre and Timbaland and started working with this guy named Attitude or he would come by the studio and always work with us. And now he's like the voice of Timberland, worked with everybody from Missy Elliott to Justin Timberlake. You said you put out an album. It was just it was it. It wasn't you as No, it wasn't me as a performer. I just kind of financed putting out an album by this guy named Knock Diesel. And uh, I think it was 99, 2000 when I did that. And then kind of everybody went their separate ways that, you know, once they got called to LA to go hang out with Dr. Dre, that was kind of, yeah, they were kind of gone after that. And so I had this whole studio full of equipment and um, I started reaching back out to my tutor, which was Ray Murray and he was building a new studio. So I decided to get down with him. And we ended up building the studio. It took like 18 months, two years. And then by the time we got done, we realized that the guy that we were renting the space from was really not the the lease, um, the, the owner. He was a leaseholder. Then the owner pops up one day and it's like, what's going on here? And we're like, what do you mean? We thought this guy was the owner and ended up not. And so Ray and I both had to walk away from kind of our jewel that we had built. And for me, it was like going to be a great opportunity to take my love to my, my production career into a new level. And so having to walk away from that was really hard. And I just spent a bunch of money on the pro tools, HD rigs. I had the top of the line gear and, um, kind of from there, I kind of got bummed for a minute. That was like, and were you, were you making money from music then solely or not? I was surviving. I was sustaining. I wouldn't call making money. I was sustaining through various resources. Um, but in 2002, through my experiences at Yin Yang Cafe starting in 96, 97, 98, I had met... Um, the guys who played in this group called the Chronicle, which were the Thursday night group that everybody, I mean, it, dude, it was like magic going to watch them play. was like the best of the best you've ever seen in your life. It was just like a magic moment. And so many big artists spawned from there, like NDRE and, um, you know, numerous other people. And, um, so I had met this guy named Elrock and Elrock was a genius um, he was from Liberia. His father was the minister of finance in Liberia when, um, oh God, what's his name? Charles Taylor came in and overthrew the government and, uh, whatever the eighties, late seventies, whatever it was. Um, L rocks family was basically ran out of the country. His father was executed by firing squad by Charles Taylor the U.S. government helped him get out of the country. And then when he got over here, because of the status of his family, you know, the U.S. government put him in, they, they put him in the best schools and he went to music conservatories and all this stuff. So when I started working with him in 2002, like he really taught me how to make music. Um, well, that's, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I want to, I, I guess I want to ask you more about that because... Like, the producer, from what I, you know, I mean, I think I know a decent amount about music, more than probably the average person, just because I always had friends who were in bands, and I, I think I've listened to almost everything, but it seems like the producer, there's something there that you can't really, it would seem like you can't really teach, right? Just like, 
why is Jimi Hendrix the greatest guitar player? You know, what I mean, you can't say it's the way he, the way he hits the notes. It's it's his fucking energy, right? So producer is bringing this thing: how to make things sound better than they already are, how to pull out things from people, how to put it together. So when you say he taught you, what did he? Was it technical? Was it just what to look for? Uh, well, most mostly, you know, you learn through observation. You know, keeping your mouth shut and just paying attention. You know. And I had learned by that time that I'd been in the game 10 plus years in different forms or fashions, never in a creative fashion, really. And um, I kind of knew that if I surrounded myself with successful people, that it was just going to be a matter of time before I would find my own success. And really what I learned from Elrock mostly was the art of making music which his description of music kind of goes something like this he's like you know you take the Beatles for instance you know and every great song has three melodies you know it has a bass melody a rhythm melody and a lead melody and um, when you start clouding up a song with more than that you really start losing the essence of what making music is all about you know, it's like if you took the Beatles records apart piece by piece and listened to them track by track soloed, you're going to hear a bunch of mistakes, a bunch of missed notes, a bunch of miscues, vocals a little off. But kind of when you put all those mistakes together is what makes it beautiful. And that's kind of what he taught me. Of course, we were doing programmed music, you know, but he taught me how to make quote unquote beats or professionally known as music beds in the industry is what they call them right. tracks whatever you want to call them right things that are played under or behind other things things that are played under vocals you right. know like i would create a track someone would write vocals to it right so my first jump in the game was i'd probably been tutelaging under him for a year and change and, you know, the whole time I was steady learning how to make beats while watching him. Like, he would do his thing. I would record all his stuff for him. Even though it was my Pro Tools rig, he had bought my friend Avery Johnson's house, which had a studio in the basement, which he had cut the uh, first NDIRE record. He had did Never Scared for Bone Crusher and numerous other artists. And... um L Rock had bought the house, didn't have money to buy the studio, so I showed up with all the gear. And it was you just had the gear from the yeah, from working with Ray Murray. So it was kind of like I had all this equipment, and L Rock had a space, and it was just kind of a perfect marriage. Plus, you know, I had odd jobs paying the bills, so I didn't necessarily need L Rock to pay me to survive. What's an odd job? I don't know. Read between the lines. Well, you said we could talk about anything, so I'm just asking. I mean, you know, you know, shrubbery. <laughs> we don't have to go into detail. I just, yeah, yeah, you know. You know just, so that's fine. That's shrubbery is enough. Shrubbery is enough. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so then, all right. So you guys get together in 05, you said? or what No, was this was like 02. 02, sorry. 01, 02, somewhere around in there. And um, so by 03... Oh four, I kind of had my feet in it pretty heavily. Uh, my first jump in was with Too Short. Um, he was coming over to work with El Rock because El Rock at the time was considered probably one of the dopest producers around. He, uh, I mean, he did Yeah for Usher. He he that main melody in that song he came up with. I mean, arguably, he could probably say that he produced it. That might cause some controversy, but I was there. <laughs> um, Rock is just, he's a musical genius, and he taught me. He, some of his genius rubbed off on me, enough for me to kind of move in my own direction. So one day, Too Short was coming over, and at that point, my tracks were getting good enough where Rock felt comfortable to kind of introduce me as another producer. And so Elrock said, hey, when Too Short comes over, I want you to make him a beat CD. First, I want you to cut vocals on this one track that I did. Then after that, I want you to kind of make him a beat CD, give him three of your best, and I'll throw in one. And he kind of intentionally threw in a beat that wasn't that great. Crappy one, right? So, of course, 
next day, two short calls up and said, man, I want three of those, and they, they were mine. And then those get put on a record? Uh, they never made it to a record, but it was kind of like my jump in. Right. To, because, he, because he had... He recognized that I had a little something. Right. And then I kind of, at that point, El Rock was kind of like, okay, you know, I got enough money. He probably had enough money the whole time to do his own thing, but he, he and I just got along so well. Plus, like I said, I always had the great herb and in the hip-hop urban community. That's uh, that, Especially at that point, to have the quality that I had. <laughs> hate to sound braggadocious, but they all wanted to be around that. Right. You know, so... And so it was a easily it was it was my way in, right? You know, and then my talent was secondary until my talent kind of eclipsed all that. So you know, you said that he just so when these guys come in and write records, I mean, I'm sure everyone's got their own process, but is that how a lot of it works for them? They come, they come to a producer and just say, "Look, I need some beats," and then they've got lyrics already written out, or they just want to get inspired, then they write lyrics, or most ninety nine percent of the time, people get inspired by the music. That's that's where it comes from. You know, what about guys that like a, like a guy like Jay Z? I assume he just he just comes up with, with everything, or does he still look to people to write him tracks? Uh, I mean, there's you know rumor innuendo that he doesn't write his own stuff. Although one of my closest friends was in the studio with him not even two months ago and said that Jay Z walked in, listened to the track for thirty minutes, didn't say a word, then walked in the booth and just, just killed it. it. Just dropped it, right. you know. So obviously, you know his genius is real. I mean, he's. You I don't, can't fake that. You can't fake that. There's, there's no way you can fake that. So you know, a guy like that, yeah, there is some. You don't make it to that level without having great business acumen and great talent. Right. But you think you said ninety nine percent of the time they uh, look for a producer to give them beats, then they get inspired by that. Yeah. That's normally the way it goes. Sometimes, you know, a guy like a rapper producer type, like a Kanye, he might have a vocal concept and then create a song around it. Right. But most of the time, yeah, it, it normally happens like that. I mean, some great writers will come up with great hook ideas or a great song with just a melody in their head and then sing it to you and then you can create the music bed around that. Right. So, so where were we in the timeline here? Uh, I'd say that's like oh three, oh four. I ended up working for Too Short for a short stint. I couldn't really handle. It was very dramatic and crazy over at his place. I'm gonna leave that where it sits. Can I just can I we just like girls, guns, all the above? Yes. Okay. All that. Right. All that. I. <laughs> I love Todd Shaw and I love Wayne Shaw. They're great people. Okay. So it didn't work out. You like I, I mean, it, it's not that it didn't work out. It was just like I was in movement. I was in motion and I wanted to be on my own path. I didn't want to be underneath anyone. Right. Or I didn't want to come up under anyone's wing. Right. I wanted to make it on my own. And the first time I ever recorded a song in the studio was in 1991 with a guy by the name of Billy Hume. And uh, throughout my whole career, I mean, he was present. He introduced me to Sector 9. You know, he recorded the first album of the first artist that I ever managed. I mean, he was always there. So after I left L Rock, I moved into Billy's studio and stayed there until... So that's 2003. Stayed there for a couple of years, year and a half. And Billy taught me the art of... Um, taking an arrangement and really kind of fleshing it out and making it sound good. Like he, he, he was more known for a mix engineer, even though he was a, a writer on probably ninety nine percent of the the songs that he mixed. Because you know people, I'll just say it. You know, like David Banner, Mr. College Park, Yin Yang Twins, Little John, Bone Crusher, all these guys would come in and hate to call it out but billy would polish the turd and make it sound like something right you know he would take something that was really rough around the edges and, and make it glossy and make it sound great 
and a lot of those guys have him to thank for their career. Do they, though? Do they credit him? I don't think they do as much as they should have. I was kind of one of the first guys to kind of come back and give back to Billy when I found my success. So I stayed with Billy for a couple of years, and then after that, you know, once again, it came to, hey, you know, you've kind of outgrown the nest. You should just go out on your own completely. And I moved my whole rig to my first house that I bought in 2005. I was making music in the house while the house was still being constructed. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a foreclosure with the floor falling in, and I just picked one room, threw all my gear in there, right. and people would be over there working on my house. You know, I should have been working on it, but they were doing it, and I was in my room making beats. Could you, you know, with that, with the music, with them making noise in the background. Yeah, I didn't give a shit. I was just kind of had my own, all my own gear. I didn't need anything. Where from, was this? Where was this house? What part of town? This is off of Candler Road. So I kind of started in Bankhead and moved to Candler Road. I mean, you know, <laughs> went from the west side to the east side to Decatur. Right. And uh, you know, I mean, I just. Started doing my own thing and then uh, worked with a lot of different people. Was able to make enough money on a, on a monthly basis to sustain myself and walk away from my street hustle. And then uh, about a year later, well, that's when I was introduced to Scooter Braun, who is Justin Bieber's manager and um, the owner of his label with Usher. They co-own the label. And I remember vaguely, or vividly, I should say, um, Scooter coming over to my house and like, hey man, check out this kid on YouTube. And it was a little Justin Bieber singing and playing piano. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Can you pay me? <laughs> you know, what you owe me? You know? And I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely don't have any ill will towards that guy. He's uh, been very successful albeit probably not made a whole bunch of new friends but i mean he's been very successful and so it was kind of christmas time 06 i had been working out of my house for a little more than a year and changed and i basically worked for scooter for about a year and it was around christmas and i was like scooter hey you know man i need to get paid like i've been working for you on your projects your different whatever they were and like I need some money you know I need to pay my rent I mean pay my mortgage pay my bills buy some Christmas gifts whatever and Scooter was like well I can't pay you and I was like no you won't pay me you know you you live a very good life and I feel like you could pay me but you won't he was like well He's like, well, I can't pay you, but I'll get you a gig. So he got me a gig out off of Bankhead with this uh, guy named Bingo. And uh, so I call the guy and say, hey, I'm coming out on this day. Go out there. And essentially the purpose for my visit was to take stock of their studio and basically rebuild it. Not rebuild it as far as hammer and nail, but like strike all the equipment, plug it all in right, make it all communicate properly so that they could have a functional facility. Because like most people, they had all the great gear, but didn't, didn't, right. didn't necessarily know how to use it right. So, um, so I get to the studio... And, uh, you know, I'm the only white boy around for five miles. It's not a crackhead, you know. And I drive up my little $400 Honda and pull up and I walk in there and I'm like looking around the room. I'm like, oh my God, I got some work to do. And uh, I start kind of rattling off the things that need to happen in order for this to be a functional studio. And... <clears throat> And uh, he looks at me and he's like, how much is this going to cost? And I was like, well, you can give me that watch. And so his boy jumps up. He's like, yeah, you know who this is? I'm like, I don't really give a shit who he is. Like, I'm here to do a job and I'm going to get paid to do my job and then I'm a dip. Like, I'm not, I don't need any new friends. And by then, man, I'd been around so many rock stars right. that being in the hood with somebody that had some loot, that had a studio, was just like, I don't really care. I mean, I'd been around superstars right. by that point in my career. So anyway, so I look at him. I'm like, well, 
you know, you can pay me 1500 He's like, well, I'll give you a stat. I was like, all right, cool, stat, you know, 1000 bucks. And um, I was like, well, I need 500 bucks to go to Guitar Center, Sam Ash, whatever, right. to go get all the new cables and some of, the, some of the new pieces we need to get to really put this thing together. And he looks at me and says, you know, you think I'm going to give you 500 bucks and just let you leave, you know? <laughs> and so he sends his homeboy with me, this dude named Fire, and spelled F-I-Y-A-H. I love Fire, if you ever listen to this. I'd love to see you again. Um, and uh, we get in the car, and, you know, I was still smoking that good, good, so I rolled up a blunt. This is a great story. I rolled up a blunt while I'm driving the stick shift down 285, heading towards 75 North where the Sam Ash was. And I like roll it up in three minutes and I pass it to him and he's like, man, is that good? And uh, I'm like, well, just smoke it until you're, until you're done. He hit it twice and passed it to me and I just finished the whole thing like it's a cigarette and threw it out the window. <laughs> We get to Sam Ash. I run in there within five minutes. I spent $497. We roll back in the car, and Fire's just looking at me like, damn, like you're some kind of genius or something. And we get back to the studio. I walk back in. I'm like, look, man, before we even get started, you guys need to clean up this mess. I mean, this place is a wreck. So they started sweeping and vacuuming, and by then all the all of his crew had shown up and he had us yelling at everybody to start cleaning and vacuuming and whatnot. And so I take all the equipment and, uh, strike it, pull it off the wall. Everybody cleans it up, put the tables back, put the equipment back, the computer, the screen, the MPC, which is the drum machine and the keyboard, plug everything in, get everything communicating properly, get the mic pre and the mic and everything plugged in and everything's communicating and working. And uh, I'm kind of like, all right, I'm ready. He's like, well, yeah, well, it works. And I'm like, give me my money. Right. And he's like, Scooter told me you make beats. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I make beats. And he's like, well, we got an idea for a beat. And I was like, all right. And he yells at this kid named Meanie. He's like, little Meanie, come in here. Little Meanie comes in there and he's sitting on the couch and I'm kind of facing away from him. And he walks up behind me and he starts singing this hook. And uh, I'm like, man, dude, come sit in front of me in front of the keyboard and just sing it to me. Right. And so he starts singing, party like a rock, party like a rock star. Party like a rock, party like a rock star. The whole team like it. Party like a rock star. singing it and i'm like just keep singing 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 and like 15 minutes later just right. that yeah yeah just the part i got that's it that's it and so 15 minutes later i finished the beat tracked it out put it in pro tools and essentially i just left then i came back it seems like a couple days later and did the vocals or whatever and uh ended up working on a few other songs and then like i don't know second week of january or something i get a phone call from Bingo, the boss over there, and it's like, yo, it's on the radio, you know? And it ended up, it was playing on both radio stations at the same time, and that's when I knew something was... So uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was it? You made the track, left, never even thought about it, they went and put on a... Like... Well, they had friends at the radio station, like a guy who was an intern, and... You know, I mean, it's still kind of, the game is still like this. Like, you can pay to play, or you can just have something that's certifiable and people can't front on it. And yeah. they, there's still people out there that want to break the next great thing. I mean, that's what every DJ in the world wants to be able to say. Right. Like is they, that I broke this record. But that, the, the version of the radio, the version that we know now, or was some, is that some early it was, version? It, it, was, it was an early version, but it didn't matter. It was, it was good enough. My skills and acumen with the Pro Tools were decent enough to make it good. So what, what um, where, did the, where did the first guitar track, like what made you think that was the, ding, 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 ding. what made uh, you think that was the? I don't know, man. I was blazed out of my gourd and 
I'd been experimenting kind of with, you know, I was a big fan of Rick Rubens and just the whole hip hop rock sound. And, um, I just kind of found a keyboard sound that sounded really close to a guitar sound, turned down the velocity on it and just started tapping out this melody and it just kind of came out. I mean, it wasn't, it, it was not a magic moment. I mean, looking backwards, yeah, it was a magic moment. But during the, that moment... It was just another record. That yeah, it was just another track. record of 150,000 other beats I'd already made. You know, of course, I'm exaggerating. and Two or 300 beats I'd already made. And, right. you know, I, I was already somewhat jaded. I'd been in the game 13 years at that time. And I was just like or 14 geez this was a six so 15 years i'd already been in the game and i hadn't plugged anybody else's clock since 97 so you know it'd been nine years since i'd even had a any kind of job right so who uh who said totally dude uh bingo came up with the hook and then he told the guys what to say he wrote the hook he let them write their verses i'm sure he even helps with that and um yeah and then that was kind of it after that i mean it just went viral this is before viral was even a word right other than a virus that would make you sick right um it just went bananas i've never seen a song i mean a lot of people would say that they've never seen a song go so fast well so since you were the guy just hired to come clean up their shit and make a decent studio they could have left you out they couldn't have left me out see my business acumen was too i was way too smart by then because i'd been around enough people and watched enough pros get screwed by record labels management and the like that i knew what not to do meaning meaning i knew that all i needed was a split sheet which is basically the deed you know, look at a split sheet as the deed to a home that's paid off, right? You know, you and your wife bought a house, you finally pay it off, she owns half, you own half. You know, and that's kind of the way it works in music is half of it is considered the lyric side and half of it's considered the music side. So it kind of got to a point where it was boiling over, it was getting radio play and it just spread like wildfire. I mean, it went from just play in Georgia to California within weeks. Right. And uh, then it exploded. The president of Universal Republic flew down to Atlanta and uh, basically parked his limousine in the in the parking lot of this studio out in Bankhead that Bingo owned, and uh, just waited for them to sign with him. And you know, I remember walking up to Bingo. I'm like, "Hey, do you have these guys signed?" You know, and he's like, "Yeah, I got it, Pitt. I got it." I'm like, dude, do you have these dudes signed? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally after I just kept, you know, jabbing him. Of course, you don't jab a guy like Bingo too much. He he might shoot you. I mean, or I mean, he might hurt you. Sorry. <laughs> Bingo's never shot anybody. Um, yeah, and uh, he finally admitted that he didn't. So I had my attorney, whom at that point had already passed the book. He went to Brooklyn School of Law, was working for Zamba. Zamba had just been sold to Sony BMG, so he was in charge of migrating all the artists from Zamba to Sony BMG. So his um, his acumen with agreements, his um, level of writing you know, agreements was so high that he wrote something that was bulletproof. Right, but I'm saying before all that, I'm saying that you help them do this track, you go on about your business. Yeah. It, it's already on the radio. Yeah, that was like two weeks. Though. No, but I'm saying, but in that in that time, couldn't they have possibly just said, like, yeah, that's our track? Or you said, like, where 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 is it proof that, like, you did what you did? That they couldn't just say, yeah, that dude just, <clears> just plugged <throat> some shit in and then he left. I was way too smart. I kept a copy of The Master. I never let them have a copy okay. of The Master. I was smart. Okay, cool. All I right. mean, I'd been around enough pros at that point. You know. So even though for you it was just one of a million songs, you yeah. still are smart enough to go to cover your ass and know that if you're going to make something, you'll make sure that you're... Yeah, so my attorney, <clears throat> my attorney, while Monty Lippman, the president of Universal Republic, was sitting out in the parking lot, 
was busy writing up a recording agreement for Bingo to sign the guys. And um, my attorney added my name at the end, you know, and Bingo was like, no, man. I'm like, dude, come on, man. Without me, none of this ever would have happened. And you wouldn't have a recording agreement. And, you know, you'd be sitting in a pretty bad place if Monty signed these guys out from under you and you weren't in charge. Right. He was like, well, you got to take your name off. And I was like, cool. So I walk in there with copies of split sheets and copies of the recording agreement. And uh, the guys look at the recording agreement. They're like, uh, but they look at the split sheet because there's only one page. And uh, the split sheet, like I said, is the deed for the song. And I own 50%. And then they split up their other 50%. Then we all signed that split sheet and I ran the fuck out of that place as soon as I could because I knew that they didn't have an agreement with me stating that they could exploit my master in any way they saw fit. And I knew Universal was going to sign them. So what happened was is Universal, Monty, and Avery Lipman signed them and they didn't have any kind of deal with me. So, thus, after they signed with Universal, I was in the driver's seat. Because the only way a record label can put out a sound recording is if they get a producer declaration, which is basically an agreement with the producer who produced the music, that they can put their music bed out for sale, you know, to exploit it in perpetuity throughout the universe. Right. So they didn't have that with me. So about two weeks later, after they soon quickly figured out, and ironically enough, I put them in touch with their, I mean, I even got them their attorney. You know what I mean? Like they didn't even have an attorney. They didn't have a recording agreement. I put all this together for them. Right. You know, and then kind of at that point, once it started getting some airplay, I went back to Billy Hume, who was, you know, a mentor of mine amongst Ray Murray and Elrock and um I told him if he'd mix it I'd give him five percent. And so he put a really good mix on it and then overdubbed the guitar part that I had played on the keyboard, essentially copying my part and um made it sound really, really good and then we took that back to the radio and then that version got around and then, you know, before we knew it it was just insane. I mean, it literally went from nothing to super insanity within a matter of six weeks. What was the what was the first moment of super insanity for you? Like hearing it on the radio a lot is one thing, but like, what was the moment of like, okay, this is way bigger than having three hundred thousand dollars in my checking account? <laughs> Wait, they just what is that like one? Quarters royalties or what is that? No, this is way before royalties. What, this what, what was is in, the, where's the three hundred grand come from? <clears throat> well, I you know like I said earlier, I learned what not to do, right? And through learning what not to do, I learned what to do, and um, so the president and the vice president of Universal Republic, after they figured out the group didn't have a deal with me as a producer, they flew down. They were like, hey, what's it going to take for you to sign a producer declaration for this song and the four other songs that you guys have done in the past six weeks or whatever? And I was like, I don't know. You know, and I just threw out this crazy number and they had no choice but to pay me what I asked. Because, you know, it was six figures. And they had no choice. They, I could have asked for the moon and they would have given it to me. Because the song was already on the radio going crazy. And so then how are they going to make money off of it if it's already... I don't even understand how that works. <clears throat> well, it hadn't been for sale yet. And uh, so they put it up as a ringtone. It was the fastest ringtone in the history of ringtones to get to a million sales. And then it ended up selling like... Last time I heard, like six million. Then like, do you, do you get a piece of that still? Or no? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then millions of iTunes. I don't know how many albums it ended up selling. I don't know. But um, I, I never got any plaques from them. But 
I don't really care. I got the you mean checks. like the the typical like the the gold records. Like yeah, the old I school didn't. I didn't give a damn. Platinum man. records. I didn't care. I didn't. I didn't care. I was just getting. I was. I basically took full advantage of the entire situation. I got a recording deal with Universal Republic that's unheard of, and I got a publishing deal that's almost impossible to get because the song was already big when I signed both of those deals. So they were willing. It's so kind of like an athlete. If somebody shows some promise, they're like, "All right, we're going to throw a ton of money so that we own this dude and hope." By getting a few of y'all, eventually somebody's gonna hit big, right? I mean, no. They're taking a gamble, right? Nobody had any kind of exclusive deal with me. I wouldn't allow it. No, but I'm saying, like, when when when, I, when if I'm if I'm Joe Record Company, I'm trying to find the next hot thing. You're it. You may never produce another thing in your life, but I'm banking that you are. So I'm gonna throw a ton of money at you. It wasn't like that. They were more concerned with the one song. They didn't care about the future. Really. Yeah. No, that's how they roll. They're just concerned about singles, one song at a time. Right. Well, nowadays anyway, right? Because there's. I mean, it's all. It's been like that for since before people even realized that's what it was. It's been like that. You mean before Napster and all that even? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a single-driven game for the last ten, twelve years. I mean, especially. I mean, it was all about the single. You know, album sales were still popping off until probably like oh five, oh six, when they started dwindling, and then it went and all came crashing down oh seven, oh eight. Right. And we were kind of ahead of the curve when when ringtones were about to. We we officially killed ringtones. <laughs> Pretty much because. Because we just sold so many, and then after that, people started being able to hack their iPhones and doing whatever they wanted to with them. Right. You know, I mean, it was it was really insane. Right. It was crazy. And so, but there had to be other than the money. I mean, obviously, getting that getting that much money wired or the check or whatever they yeah. do, do. You remember how they did it? Was it a check or they wired? Do you remember? Uh, it was it was all wired. Okay, so. That's but then was there like just was it you know uh, like that, B- but that B- was just the beginning that was that's what I'm saying I'm looking at like you've got a BET award up there like going to shows or being around people you said you'd already been in the game a while but I mean uh, when it was at its like height there like I, I I couldn't handle the pressure and I disappeared like left the country or no I just disappeared changed my number turned off my phone quit talking to anybody i had you know everybody from dr dre's people to clive davis's people to you know all these people trying to reach out to me for music and i just couldn't handle the pressure and because uh, i was solo i didn't have a manager it was just me and my attorney who had kind of came up in the game together right you know he went to brooklyn school of law while my stuff was burgeoning and he had even worked with me prior to even leaving Atlanta we worked together briefly and then became really close and then he went to moved to Brooklyn went to Brooklyn School of Law ended up getting a great job and then he just grew to the point where now he's the vice president of legal affairs for Clear Channel reports directly to Bob Pittman who is one of the creators of MTV and Bob Pittman is the CEO of Clear Channel, and I think they have 20,000 employees. No so. relation. Yeah, that'd be nice. But, uh, no. So when you say you couldn't handle the pressure, you mean, like, you people wanting things from you was too much for you? Uh, there was stuff going on in my personal life that really led me, um, led me astray more than anything. Like a divorce? Uh, something like that. Okay. I don't want to get into That's that. That's fine. But so, and at that time, I also had an artist signed to me by the name of Big Crit. And uh, Big Crit, I had done a whole album with him. And um, he saw the writing on the wall that I was crashing and he wanted out. And then he, plus, he had other people kind of hollering at him because they saw his talent. I'd like to think I kind of saw it a little before the curve. I mean, he had people who noticed how talented he was. They were just kind of waiting for him to blow. I kind of took initiative and tried to be part of him blowing up. 
And then once he kind of saw the writing on the wall of me crumbling as a person, um, he wanted out. And I, I don't blame him, but it ended up where I owned the masters and the uh, administrative publishing rights to all the stuff that we did together. And I can put them out, do whatever I want to with them whenever I want. And now he's about to be a superstar. So that investment in him is going to pay off here in the near future. And, um, you know, probably a good place to stop because it gets kind of gory after that. The bloody, the bloody part should be interview number two. You think so? Yeah, I can't, I can't go any further with this right now. All right. It's it's okay, dude. Um, all right, then. Uh, can I just ask you one question and you can say we, we'll save that for number two? Okay. Just where the money go? That's number two. <laughs> all right, dude. We can stop there. That's totally right. cool. I really appreciate it, man. Hey, no stress. Thanks, dude. All right. And that's it for today's show. Uh, thank you Jason Pittman that was an awesome time and uh, I hope we do get to part two uh, I'd certainly like to know where all that money went uh, but I think a lot of you can guess uh, Jason's an awesome guy though and I'm uh, really glad he took the time to do that interview with me and uh, we're going to call that the show for today folks thanks so much for joining in uh, and maybe he and I will actually talk about running next time too maybe not uh, please do sign up for the mailing list go to obstacleracingmedia.com and it says subscribe here You'll find it easy to sign up. Uh, get on the email list. Find us on Facebook, Obstacle Racing Media. Find us on Twitter, Obstacle Media. Uh, please do check out our buddies in the West Coast, my brother and sister, Daniel and Lori, with the Getting Dirty podcast. They're doing some great stuff over there as well. Um, just thank you so much. Keep those cards and letters coming. Appreciate it reading another one today. And uh, that's going to call it for today. Love you, Mission Mean It. I've got to run. Yeah.